Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets, interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hey, welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host, Kim Wanup. How you doing? How are you? I feel like I'm getting uh, more listeners because nobody's working. I feel like, and you know what? That's okay for me. Um, but I'd rather you be listening on your way to work. So um, I got to say I'm tremendously lucky that I am starting up a show and I am recording this Monday night and the fate of the writer strike is just hours away and I don't know. Um, they haven't told us, uh, what the outcome will be. And I think we're hoping to, or they're hoping to keep people working. And I think we are too. We have some scripts and hopefully they don't shut it down because, uh, I'd like, I'd like to work, you know, I like it because then I get to tell you about it. So, you know, but, um, I, it reminds me every time I start a show advice I should give to people who are in this industry or starting out If you, I don't care how many art classes you take or drafting or drawing or CAD or, 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 you know, textiles, you should take a negotiation class because you will have to negotiate every single deal you make on every single show. You could take what they offer. Uh, You could say yes the first time out. That's, uh, that's you. You do you. You're not doing anybody else favors and you're not doing yourself any favors because that's, it's all about self-worth and you have to believe that your position and you are coming in and giving it your all a thousand percent and you are worth more. Just always think of that. The other thing I would say, take a body language class. Know people's body language when you're talking to them in negotiations. That's also a good one. Um, I also highly recommend Laws of Power. (laughs) I love that book. I have it right next to me, actually. Um, Laws of Power really can get into somebody's head a little bit psychologically and just know the type of personalities you're dealing with in this industry. Um, I always think that that's that's helpful. Uh, So the writer's strike. You know what? Go for it. Do it. Just... do it, just strike and get it because at some point I hope that it will trickle down to us because these new contracts or new media, which was deals were made, you know, contracts were made over 10 years ago or something. It's, it's insane and stupid and you work for streaming companies and you make less and it makes no sense because I'm doing the same job I did on that show, but you're paying me less makes no sense or you're paying me more (laughs) that makes no sense either um but the writer strike issue the compensation for writers um in the media um deadline has had a really good couple articles the last couple days about like breaking everything down um and just giving specifically I, i wanted to read this one paragraph specifically with the current strike the wga seeks gains in compensation and residuals and curbs on mini rooms while 
where groups of writers work in advance of the production of the TV series to break stories and write scripts. The Guild has argued that the producers are well able to compensate writers more fairly. The Guild also wants to establish some sort of policy on AI and authorship, especially if a writer's ideas are used on the basis of AI-generated work. Now, you might think, oh, don't let that one go right now. Don't think about that, but don't. Don't let that one go because that is going to affect us. I've already seen how you can put something into AI and create a whole uh, scene, a whole uh, set, a whole lit set. I mean, you can do things now with AI that, you know, as tools can help us, but can also work against us. And we don't want that either. The good thing is probably anybody that could use it against us, they don't know how to use the tools anyway. So (laughs) that kind of helps us. But yeah, that's what I would say. Um, So... On the eve of this uh, writer's strike, I, I'm, I'm for it. I, I think it's a, it needs to be done. I hate that people will be out of work. I hate to see those picket lines. And um, I don't know. I just, I just think it's, it's inevitably, whenever they have wanted anything, or any of us, we've had to strike. I mean, they didn't just give us health care. We had to strike for it. You know, they wanted to take hours away from our health care. We have to fight for it. It's... You know, it's decent wages and, and, and decent living for, you know, just to work on a TV show. It's crazy. It's crazy, and I love it. It's, it's really crazy. Yeah, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I'm going to an FYC event this this weekend. It's hosted by Apple, and it's uh, costumes and production design, which I think is really smart. Apple is just stepping up their creativity. They want the awards. They want, you know, the creative awards. And I think it's really smart to do this and and have this panel. Um, They're having the production designer, Jamie McCall, who you can listen to on this podcast, and the costume designer, Agnes Strathy, from Schmegadoon, season two. The production designer, Paul Cribs, and costume designer, Jack Levy, from Ted Lasso. Lute, Jennifer, Jennifer Degnan, who you can see here on this podcast, um, and costume designer Kristen Mann, who I've worked with many times, who is a doll for the show Lute, physical production designer LJ Hootieshell, Hello Tomorrow, Maya Siegel production designer, you can also hear her on this, and it's moderated by the ADG, what is he, president, Nelson Coates, who does uh, the morning show. So that's this Saturday. I'm going to hit that up. I can't wait. I can't wait to see Jamie and, and others and meet Maya, which would be great. She doesn't even know yet that I'm coming. Coming to get you. Um, so I'll let you know how that goes. It should be awesome. It's just a panel of them talking about their work. And I just think I really applaud Apple for supporting, you know, the creatives um, in this sense and, and giving them an FYC. So bravo to, to Apple. What am I watching? Well, I'm watching Secession. We talk about it every week. It's awesome. Barry, totally in. This week's episode, awesome sauce. I started shrinking on Apple, Harrison Ford, production designer Cabot McMullen, and production and um, set decorator Andrea May Fenton. Really nice. Nice offices. Evenly toned. Very, um, I don't know if they're in. 
are they in Oregon? Whatever, it makes me feel like they're in Oregon. I don't even know where they are. I forget. Um, but it's funny. I'm only, I only did the one episode, but I would, uh, I'm going to keep on with that. I love the show Somebody Somewhere on HBO that comes on after Barry with Bridget Everett, the comedian. It's a really odd cast. It's not like a, like a in-depth show. It's a comedy, dark comedy, her real life. I just feel like these two people are like having conversations like it's kind of unscripted and real. I don't know. I just think it's funny. Like it'll be done. It'll be like completely boring. And then like a scene happens and you're like, well, this is really like my life. This touches me. This is, this is good. So I would recommend it as a dark comedy. Um, speaking of dark, I finished David Milch's book, um, Life's Work, uh, a memoir. And I think I finished it I, I ha- this week in the car in Audible. The guy who's reading it sounds exactly like David Milch, I believe, with this accent and like this passion. And um, it's unreal. Uh, I, I wish that I could speak like him and write like him. Just his descriptions of um, dialogue from NYPD Blue and going through these scenes and how he wrote them. And, and I mean, I was sobbing. And I, I kind of remember the, the episodes that he's talking about. It was unbelievable. He um, gives a shout out to my cousin Kim, who played uh, Detective Russell. He also describes like how he came up with Deadwood, which was a completely different story set in a completely different era about somebody completely else. And HBO already had uh, Rome coming out. It was, uh, you know, and so they said, can you put it somewhere else? And he came back a couple months later and came up with Deadwood, like amazing. I loved Deadwood. And he tells about how it got canceled and how they brought it back. And um, he also, oddly enough, talks about the writer's strike in 2007 and puts it very, very poignantly that, look, the producers talk to us like we're children. You can't have this. You can have this now. You can do this. And and the way that he describes it really makes you understand what people are feeling. And, and um, it was just odd to me that he's talking about something that is relevant all of these years later still. Um, he also talks about projects that never happened and, and like this Johnny Carson show that he wanted to do, which probably would have been brilliant. But he is writing this as he's suffering from Alzheimer's and um it seems that his wife his wife Rita was really his rock and and highly commendable uh, in their relationship and very forgiving because he goes through millions of dollars in either his gambling or, or or drug habits so it's a really good book I can't recommend it thank you David Smith for telling me about it on this podcast earlier this year and um, I would totally recommend it to all, especially writers, um, just his process and, and how he got into writing. It was, it's really good. And I cried. I cried. It was good. <laughs> so, yeah, let's see. In this episode, I speak with production designer Catherine Elder. Originally from Austria, Catherine started out as an assistant and stumbled into working on a commercial and just fell in love with the art department. She hustled her way up in positions and even in the set deck department and is now production designing film and TV series. 
Catherine's work on the reboot of Clive Barker's 1987 horror classic Hellraiser in 2022, she helped to create a world that was both terrifying and captivating. I had to watch it, and I've never been a fan of Hellraiser, and it was scary. But her designs of this film's iconic puzzle box, the laminate configuration, I I hope I'm saying that right, helped to establish a visual language that has become synonymous with Hellraiser franchise. So, and, and we talk a little bit about it not being like a, like it's not a rebooted retelling and, and, and the fans and the cult fans that um, Hellraiser has is, is really incredible. Um, she uses lighting and texture to help create a sense of unease throughout the film and her attention to detail in this art deco uh, design that she did was, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, so in addition to her work on Hellraiser, Catherine has also worked on the stars show BMF, which is Black Mafia Family. And designing Detroit in the 80s um, for a story of brothers who created their own mafia family. You can see her work on CatherineEdder.com, and I hope you enjoy. as well as what, what Inval is doing with the PDC allows us that safe space yes. and, and a really good thing. So, yeah. And I imagine your podcast too. So. I, I try. <laughs> I yes. try. <laughs> I love it. Um, I wish like uh, Wayfair or somebody would pay me to do it, but you know. <laughs> you will. I mean, after 100 episodes, I imagine there will be some attraction and interest. So. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. going well. I don't, it's, that's a dream. But it's more, it's really um, education, too, of what we do and explaining what we do to people who want to get into the business. So I, I try to take that approach, too. So if some of my questions do seem, like, really dumb, I do, I try to dumb it down a little bit just because it's not just us listening to it. I, I try to yeah. cater to to an audience who doesn't know our lingo, in a sense. But Of course. Yeah. yeah. Where of are you course. from? I don't understand that. I'm from Austria originally. Austria. I love your accent. I, I just oh, thank you. Oh. Yeah, I just had twenty and um, twenty years on the twenty third of January. I had twenty years in um, mm. moving to Los Angeles. Oh yeah, couldn't believe it's been twenty years. Yeah, yeah. My... But I kept my accent. I was never in front of the camera, so <laughs> I might as well put my accent to work. No, I know it's it's a beautiful thing of. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you know languages. I don't know any other language. I just have like a Philly accent that comes out when I drink now. So it's like, it's not as cool. <laughs> it's not, yeah. not as well, charming. I mean, I, yeah. when, when people in the United States say that they don't have access to languages as much, um, I mean, they're, you know, Europe with, I don't know how many languages, 25 languages and more is crammed into an area that's, yeah. three quarters of the size of the United States. Yeah. So we cross a border and we are forced to yes. deal with different languages. Yeah. And here you just don't have it as much. So it's a different cultural history. Yeah. Definitely. And in that regard, um, I never blame anyone for not being trilingual or bilingual or, yeah. you know, a lot of people are just by their background. What, uh, did you come to the U.S. to work in film and TV? Yeah, I came, um, the Austrian film community, 
an artist community, I would say, is very aristocratic in a way. Um, it's it's very small. And I think there's this preconceived notion that you already have to know what you're doing as a very young adult. Mm. And you have to have those connections to get in. And and so I I just didn't fit into it's a very thought heavy process um, mm. over there. And when I visited the United States and Los Angeles, the first time I realized that artists in, in the States can just explore curiosity and, mm. and artists were much more open in Los Angeles. I talked to fine artists and filmmakers and everyone when I came to share ideas, there's not this, this need to be very protective about your ideas. There's just this, this open sharing and, and I also think that what I really appreciate to this day that um, people out of the film industry and in Los Angeles, you can speak from your gut mm. rather than having to intellectualize everything. Yeah. And, and so I really, that brought me, like after visiting the United States um, several times and then um, <clears throat> coming for, for a, a personal just residency to a friend's house in LA, I realized that that's much better suited for me as a person than the Austrian aristocratic <laughs> art scene. I just didn't dig it. Yeah, it's it's good that you figured that out, though. It's also a, it's a you know what I mean. Like it, it yeah. sometimes it doesn't click. So it's yes. awesome you, you figured <laughs> I'm that glad out. Glad I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was 20, 20 years a week ago, two weeks ago. It seems like it. I'm you know. I always have, I have people's websites, which yours is beautiful, by the way. Um, and then I have like an IMDB or I do like some background research. And I feel like it looks like you just dived right into being a production designer or like assistant set decorator. Like, how did you just dive into this? Did you, did you have connections? Did you get lucky I mean I, I never say lucky yeah, really yeah. because we all we all have to be at the right place at the right time and know what we're doing so <laughs> yeah I think my path was kind of organic because I didn't come to the United States to be a production designer I actually didn't know anything about the art department mm -hmm. I just realized when I visited Los Angeles for the first time that film is something that's approachable for a normal mortal human being mm -hmm. and when I came I signed up to LA City College which was um, they had a good international student program that I could afford coming from a very humble background and um, I wanted to be a screenwriter and a director but I didn't even question that a lot in my <laughs> early 20s I just I never had that path right and um, an ex-boyfriend of mine was also a screenwriter who um, had some noticeable success at a very early age at Sundance. And he at some point said, Kat, yeah, you can be a screenwriter, but wealthy people can be screenwriters because they can just write until something hits and you might want to keep your bank account happy to <laughs> find yourself a job in the film industry. And I couldn't find a job without a work visa. So I became an artist assistant. And at some point, those two fine artists said, Kat, you love film and you love art. Why don't you go into production design in the art department? And one of their other friends was a production designer who um, brought me on as an intern on a Comcast commercial. 
And I just fell in love with the art department. Mm. And I, I recall we shot up in Santa Clarita and I was all <laughs> in it. Like then the union regulations were a little different. And I was able to carry furniture and carry in flats and paint and right. all these things. And it came to a point that the directors noticed and they said, who is that young woman over there? And they realized that I wasn't getting paid. So they, the production company made up a fake green screen rental for $600. Oh my gosh. That's so kind. That was awesome. You must've been hustling. (laughs) Yes. And I don't know if that still happens, but uh, that was the moment where I say, having read about mythology and, Mm -hmm. um, I dove into storytelling and I realized that if you look at at my path as in in terms of mythology that was the moment that production design and the art department chose me. Mm. I didn't oh, that's that so it cool. chose me and I just fell in love. And then I um you know I became a a PA and a set dresser and then I was an on-set dresser for a long time once I got my work permit figured out. Um and from an onset dresser, I became a buyer and uh, I helped an art department coordinator for a minute, but the coordinating part didn't work out so well. And then all along, while I was trying to make money and really learn from people that already were much more advanced in the industry, I teamed up with young, with master class students at UCLA and USC mm. and AFI and production designed their short films. Smart. And that's why I was... Yeah, I could make mistakes. And I said, as long as you pay for my gas and put food on my tables, on my table, I can do it. So it was kind of that parallel line that I, that I worked my way up through the ranks um, on bigger jobs. And all the while I pursued the opportunity or the the chance. Yeah. And at some point I got my first feature film with $2,000 budget. And I hired my best friend and her and I did everything from special effects to being background extra zombies. Was <laughs> <to laughs> she to still your best friend after you, you paid her a dollar? <laughs> well, she's a, a very successful setter now, Melissa Jusufi. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, we started together and I'm so proud of her at the path that she made oh, yeah. in the past 15 years. Yeah. Oh, she's awesome. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. I know when I think of people who like I start, I did like Hallmark films out with and then like I run into them on a project. I'm like, look at us. Look at us. Yeah. Like, look at us getting out of there and getting other things. How good is that? Like, it's always yeah. like we grew up. <laughs> yeah, we definitely grow up and you grow up quick if you if you if you are ambitious and I had to learn a lot, like you have to learn how to say, I don't know. And you have to learn how to own your mistakes and you, you have to humble yourself and become a very good communicator and, you know, learn project management and learn how to deal with big egos and, you know, so many different personalities and Mm -hmm. from show to show and, um, TV to film and, you know, going to different cities if you're shooting like it's it's an amazing array of people that we have to deal with and personalities mm-hmm. and still be a manager a budgeter a, but you know and still you know get it all done it's a lot but it's it's a lot it's crazy what we do i watched hellraiser i just mm-hmm. watched that i never watched the 
the original because it scared the shit out of me when I was little. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to watch this. And I was like, it was, it was so scary because I kept thinking about how it impacted me that I was so scared of it when I was little, I wouldn't even watch it. Then watching it this time and being like, with a designer eye, because I'm talking to you and I'm looking at this house and Mm -hmm. the set and like everything. And I'm like, man, there's a lot that goes into these movies. (laughs) There is a lot going into this movie right now. And I wonder if, the lot, a lot of it went into the original, or was there any conversation with you of like, we want to play homage to this, or like, or was it like, clean slate, this is new, let's design it? Well, I think there's, there's many different aspects that kind of came together in order to define the film of, of what the, the final outcome um, is at this point. The original film in 86 was a pure indie film. I think they had a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Mm. And um, I myself am not a fan of horror films. Um, And I think that the directors that hire me, and especially David Bruckner, having done The Night House with him Mm -hmm. and um, Hellraiser afterwards, appreciated the fact that I am not um, a horror film fan. I come from a background of realism and human patterns, and I enjoy building those worlds and understanding who our characters are. And in horror film, that's not much different than in a drama or a comedy. We ask the same questions. We need to get to the bottom of understanding our characters and their actions in order to understand which world they are moving in and how they are interacting with that world. Mm. And so we approached Hellraiser or the script that that I ended up working on and this Hellraiser in the same way with the same kind and with the same approach. But there was this this pressure to step into the shoes of the original because David really wanted it to be a reboot and not another sequel. Mm. And I can tell I have not watched any of the sequels. I've watched the first one. I've read that book. And that's what we worked off of. And in that process, I got to know Clive Barker. And I listened to interviews of him and understood what a deep intellectual thinker he is and how much thought he brought to a movie that if you are not a particular fan of that very specific genre, you could judge that very easily as something that's not interesting or that's obsolete and that that didn't have any impact on society, but it really did. Yeah. In many ways with BDSM, homosexuality, there's so many building stones that he created back in the 80s that for that time were visionary and very important Mm. for social growth. And so we kind of docked onto that approach 30 years later, when everything that Clive Barker talked about back then has become something that we are all very used to. I don't want to call it norm because it's not norm, but it's not shocking anymore. Mm. And and so we, we tapped into different themes that were probably broader as our society grew and, and our social networking and the way in and, and globalization, everything kind of blew themes from this small film that we had in the 80s into a much bigger context of what is addiction, what is pain, what is seduction, what is the history of all of that, what is the history of of torture and sensation, and how do we deal with it now? 
And um, the Void character, I think, is a perfect representation in a very exaggerated way of the egomaniacs that we mm. meet nowadays. Yeah, in American society and throughout the world. So that was really wonderful feeding ground to to build um, a complex backstory for that character, which was a lot of fun. And and what Hellraiser allows me to do is same with other. I've only done the Nighthouse and Hellraiser in terms of horror, is that you get to deal with themes and subjects that are deeply personal on many yeah. levels because we're still in in a you know we're, we're dealing with universal themes of emotion and yeah you're invoking that emotion like that's yeah. a very high intense emotion when in, in a theater yeah. or in a movie yeah. when you're trying to invoke fear and and yeah. panic and everything it's it's not easy it's not easy to do yeah. and it's not just the camera doing it or the acting it's it's everything around it. it's the music it's the sets it's it's everything yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and, and 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 i think exactly with that in mind we went ahead and tried to really visualize and mirror who void as a person is for that mansion mm. and how we can represent a specific you know and trigger a specific emotional arc by playing with a certain color palette and textures and working very much on the vertical axis as well because the cenobites descend right into this world um and that was all amazing playground i'd never had an opportunity to do anything like it we had concept designers and i had many set designers and um, which I never had more than two before and suddenly mm. I have seven and two extra to design furniture and light <laughs> fixtures. Right. And all of that happened in a foreign country with language barriers and delays um, and um, were missing you resources. In Bulgaria? Where were you? Oh. In Serbia. Serbia. We shot in Serbia. Belgrade, Serbia, yeah. yeah. But COVID and brought film production to a halt and then it suddenly bottlenecked mm. where a lot of film productions there at the same time and knives out being the the big the big big contender with our tiny little production and they had a lot of the resources and um we got the the scraps that we tried <laughs> to put to use and and those sometimes disappeared yeah. to go over and work on right. the big movie. So it was definitely a test on many levels. And I'm amazed we got it to to, to where we got it. Let's no. say it that way. I, yeah. I also appreciate the lighting in that movie. I, I feel mm -hmm. like with the, because I'm going to say it was like a, almost like an art deco like theme in that big room, which I'm assuming was a build, that big room. Yes. Yeah. We built a lot. Like, that was yeah the entire mansion was kind of empty locations that we structured and and built out with full dresses and then that mm. main room was our hero stage build and and eli um well it, it was like a whole team it was vfx dp director mm. we all collaborated with lighting tests and and color palette and camera tests to really formulate something that's almost um that that lack life that right. it's it, that void is a representation of chronic illness and we really wanted to bring that into space mm -hmm. um but at the same time our deco felt very appropriate to use as a pillar to 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 design this world within because it it 
felt so well fitted to the Cenobite world. Right. Our deck kind of just married. And so we took those elements and, and tried to, to go with it and run with it. I loved all the intricateness uh, of the, there was the ceiling and then there was like a refle- reflection of that, like in the floor design that you have and in the gates and everything, like this repetition that you kept throughout the design, I thought was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if it's going to get too redundant. um, But then you put yourself into a place of a billionaire and how they would augment their mansion or build their mansion. There's a consistent look throughout. Yeah, Yeah. no, it was really nice. It it let me it let me forget what I was watching a little bit, you know, like like I'm gonna focus on this gate right now instead of this <laughs> these arms it. coming out and and then there is there is that scene with that big gate that like almost crushes them. Yes. That one, yep. Yeah. And they, and how you have I'm assuming it was a build, you have the little peekaboo window so she can see through and see them coming at her. Which I thought mm-hmm. was great too. It's like, oh yeah, look, she gets right there. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an afterthought. Like we built, we had to build the walls of 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 his mansion and that gate. Um, we actually built it on the grounds of the actual princess of Serbia, the, mm. the royal family of Serbia. We, we were able to film on the grounds, and the house that you see in the exterior is is part of the royal palace of Serbia. Which oh no um, way! Very interesting that they let us film there. And yeah, and, and those little peak holes where they were introduced afterwards by David because it, it just served the, the building of tension a little more to be able to have visible access of that particular Cenobite coming for them. Yeah. And I think it worked in the end. It was it was um it, it felt okay because they were small enough yeah. to 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 make sense. Yeah, yeah I like I liked it. I thought it it all worked really well. I like that actress. I thought she did a really good job. I wanted her hair to move. <laughs> That's the only thing. Her hair really? was... I have to watch it again. Her hair was somewhat distracting to me through the movie. Like, it was like, uh, it was like her bangs never moved and they were constantly perfectly, like, in her face. <laughs> interesting see yeah, I have to watch it again and if I ever watch it again then I'll probably see exactly yeah. that yeah yeah she's she's she has character and yeah. what I've really enjoyed about David's choice with her character and and the and also his costume design is we mm. are accustomed to seeing very sexy beautiful women yeah. in red in horror movies yeah it becomes so the damsel in distress theme becomes so redundant. No, she was strong. And, she was and, a strong yeah. person. Yeah. And and putting her in clothes that didn't speak necessarily to her physical features. Yeah. And and turn you know, moving away from, from the sexualization of, of female roles in horror film, I think was a very bold and um feminist move yeah. from the director and i um applauded him for it i, I really enjoyed that um yeah. the the one other thing i wanted to know is with um all of the elements like the horror elements of like the chains and everything i know that's all like cgi or like special mm-hmm. effects or whatever but were there elements you knew that you needed to design into the set to enhance the horror like like oh we need to see where those chains are coming from which you probably don't but i'm just wondering whether 
was there anything that sticks out to you for like I had to design specifically for this because of this? The chains were practically a lot. Some of the chains, not obviously the full extension, but we did design the chains. And oh, you we did? did? Oh, wow. And also the hooks. Um, yeah. We wanted them to be practical. Um, and that's, again, I, I think really kudos to, to David being, having grown up in the horror genre, he takes his audience very seriously. And as much as he insisted on having no cgi blood but real blood or as much real blood as oh. possible he also wanted to have most of the the gags um practical so we we did a lot of wire work oh, um, wow. and we created the hooks and we had prosthetics for some of the hooks um penetrating the skin and um the chains were then also photographed by the vfx team and extended mm. Um, so that was one thing. And then we also, um, the, the bathroom scene where um, her brother, when, when she first sees yeah. um, a Cenobite in the, uh, uh, in the park, in the playground, her brother comes to her salvage and then walks into the bathroom to wash her, uh, his hands. And then the bathroom starts shifting and a dimensional doorway opens up. We built that practically. That, oh, that... bathroom really shifted. Oh, that's fantastic. And that then we beautiful. augmented it later with VFX. But those walls actually moved in stages and unfolded like a cube. I oh. think there were three or four stages there for elements. Oh. And then it got enhanced. And we had the lighting gags. And a lot of that was practical. Oh, I'm trying fantastic. to remember what else. But we had several elements of walls shifting and revealing the labyrinth of the Cenobites behind mm. them, putting that all on tracks. Um, yeah, I'm I'm going through the movie right now, but the, the, there's a couple in the hospice where Manneker, the, the the woman who worked for the antagonist for Void, um, dies. There was a couple of elements in there that okay, we right. practically built as well and and animated. How yeah. was the crew there? I mean, I know you're saying like Knives Out was there and like other fe features, but how was the crew? Was it like, whoa, you guys are like come over to LA or was it like this is pretty good for where we are <laughs> um I do think that Serbia has tremendous talent and and especially in you know in in the ages of 30 and 40 um people when the war happened in Serbia and that's what a lot of my designers told me over there kept going to school and kept getting oh their education while the war oh my god liberated the country and so you have a tremendous amount of education and talent there i think culturally we're very different from austria first of all because i'm from austria and and then i became an adult in the united states coming here in my early 20s so there's definitely a cultural difference and i do think that i would probably need to go back a second time when productions don't bottleneck in order to fully understand and fully learn to appreciate the talent that is there. It was simply that so much of the talent was with the bigger movie mm. that um, our movie with a lot of very, very complex needs at yeah. times was lacking experienced talent. Right. 
And so that was at times um, hard to navigate um, simply because of the concern of not hitting our own deadlines. Um, overall, though, I made some amazing contacts and, and the feature film that I'm going on um, next, I am fighting to bring my set design, one of my set designers from there on board. Oh, he's that's fantastic. Yeah, he's from <laughs> Hungary originally. And I have to say, I've never seen such poetic and beautiful set design before. Ooh. Like he's brilliant. And, and we also, in, in terms of illustration and concept art and, um, the ability to integrate set design, a 2D drawing, and take it all the way to V-Ray or, yeah. um, you know, a set animation that a lot of people have those talents in one person. And that's something that was very new to me coming from, um, you know, the jobs that I've worked on here. And I, I love my crew in the United States, every place I've gone, I've met wonderful crew. So um, I would say the art department talent was amazing. Um, I think from the production design, uh, from the production side, it was difficult what we were presented with and the choice that the production side made in Serbia. Mm. But in terms of talent, I, you know, it's, it was a great experience. Wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. Cause I want, cause I don't, I don't know. I'm the show that I just ended. They went to um, Bulgaria to shoot mm -hmm. for three weeks. And the designer was like, I am just blown away. I've like, I've got this great art director and I'm super excited. And I was like, are they better than us? Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> but he said it, it was just like a fantastic crew over there that he was jumping into this. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if that was like the same thing. But it's like when you go to, you know, a, a town in the U.S. and they're only like one or two deep in crew and you're the third movie there or the third project, you kind of have to like take take very green people, which we were all green at one time. But exactly. But the talent is there. That's it's scary. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the talent and the and the passion is there, which is even more important, I think, too. I fully agree. I fully yeah. agree. And that's why, yeah, I can only second what he said. Um, that often comes down to to management more than talent. Yeah. And yeah. and I'll leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> so so I, I now I didn't I knew about BMF. I didn't watch it till I knew I had to talk to you. I had to zip through a lot of it because of we're, we're, when we're talking right now, I couldn't get through the whole first and second season. So I chose That's all right. I chose yeah. I chose wisely, I think, of what I did. But I was trying to figure out because it said it was shot in Detroit and Atlanta, but where did you, did you just do some exteriors in Detroit and then you were really shooting in Atlanta? Where were you shooting? The yeah, whole our, our base is here in Atlanta, um, where I'm currently actually having this interview with you okay. from. Um, our base is here in Atlanta. There was a, a big desire to film in Michigan and in Detroit, and I wish that had happened. But with the film, with the incentives gone um, since 10 years, it was just really hard to set up a full production. I think that was a, a choice yeah. in, in regards to budget, yeah. most of anything. But our showrunner was a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. Randy Huggins is originally from Detroit and the two brothers are from Detroit. 
And so the, the idea is because it is um, based on, um, on a real life story and there is definitely the loose attached to it, but I wanted to treat it like a biography. Yeah. I thought that would bring a lot of the realism to it. We decided early on to really bring as much as Detroit, of Detroit as possible to Atlanta and for the main world building parts like the hero house mm -hmm. and very specific staples that define so much of their identity as children and as teenagers and as the adults that they broke away from Detroit of yeah. us. We needed to go back to Detroit and really find those staples that when people look back into the 80s and 90s could identify with. So in the first season, we went back for uh, just a week, I think. I mean, obviously, we prepped up there, but we, yeah. we didn't film more than a week. Mm. And then we had um, a second unit up there doing um, backdrop photography for our oh. LED screens and all of that. And then in the second season, we went back for a longer amount of time. I think we were up there filming for almost 10 days. But I, I actually don't remember. It was eight or nine or ten days. Did you do one season one and two after COVID? I was booked. I got the phone call in our lockdown. Um, I think I got the phone call in April, literally when the lockdown mm. happened. And then we were supposed to go in June, which would have been the height of you know the first six months of the yeah. pandemic. And we pushed until the fall. So I believe we started in... November or December um, of that year and went um, into April or May. Then I went to do Hellraiser. And after mm. Hellraiser, we came back and started season two, which was last year. Oh, nice. That's a nice. Yeah. That's a nice. Um, like I, I had a good thing going one time I was doing like The Good Place and Veep. And like, and I, like yeah, there this, you go. Exactly. This, like, like, yeah. Like, yeah, that's a good thing. Like I got that. I got a blood. I got horror. And then I got, oh, wait, I got blood. And I got like good drama. It mixes like, it up. I, I could not work in just one genre. I would get bored. I know. I, th I, w yeah. I say that to people all the time. I'm like, how did we ever do 22, 24 episodes at a time? Like my brain can't even do it yeah. anymore. I can't wait to get to 10 and be done. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I know. And it, like episodic television really is that like it becomes a marathon. Yeah. And but it, at some point you have so many sets and so many locations yeah. and so many on top of it problems that come up. No, with, I, you know, with, I, yeah. I don't think with the expectations in every department now of we're produ we're we're making movies every mm -hmm. hour we can't we would kill they would kill us like we'd be dead by 24 mm -hmm. episodes if we had to do that like so maybe somewhere along the line someone was like let's just do 10 like that's mm -hmm. called i mean i know i think it's the sopranos that really started that 10 episode little seasons and everything i think mm -hmm. kind of or at least made it popular but yeah pu pulling all of this off for 24 would never work I mean, mm -hmm. so you had eight the first season and then 10 the second, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I know this is a dumb question, but did you build the Dairy Queen? <laughs> did you build no, that? We no, we didn't. We actually, the Dairy Queen in, in the second season, mm -hmm. um, so interesting because we found a location here 
in Atlanta that could have worked really well. And we did like the, the whole mock-up and everything and presented it. But there was this, there was just this sentimental attachment to really take that to Detroit. And so we flew up and, and scouted that location and, and it made sense. It was in South, um, in Southwest Detroit. And it was still a Dairy Queen. Wow. Um, it didn't have any decoration. I mean, the guy sold the same product. Let's say it that way. <laughs> right. Um, but, but the environment seemed right for that shootout that's happening. And so we, 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 you know, took measurements and everything, created the sign and the ads and, and turned it into that period phase. So oh, we brought yeah. in the umbrellas and like, it was, a, it ended up being a full dress, but that actually was filmed in Detroit. In Detroit. And I have sentimental feelings about it. Cause I, I remember the day exactly when we did it and it, um, it's good that we did it there. But I wonder if if it's noticeable that it's actually Detroit, or maybe we, you know, world building in Atlanta to make it look like Detroit. That was definitely the biggest challenge. Right. I think that would be, if I had one request for the first and second season, I would say, I wish we had had more resources and time to really do the exteriors, like to an extent that created larger worlds. Like I see what you mean. Before. I see the scope would be bigger for mm -hmm. for exterior shots. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know. I was completely fooled. I thought you were in Detroit the whole time or something. <laughs> I think you did fantastic. Yeah. All those like convenience stores and everything. And like, I, I like the show. And then I was like, oh, shit, I got to go back and like watch a bunch of this because it reminded me a lot of The Wire, first mm -hmm. of all. So I, I, which is one of my favorite shows. And I, I have this sense of like the because it's two brothers the first season is is more about mesh and the second is about Terry is that am I kidding am I did I make that up or it just feels like they're getting more screen time I don't know but I, from what I got, from what I watched, I was like, oh, no. You got it completely right. And I don't know how many people pick up on it, but the showrunner's intention was to tell the first season from the point of view and with the voice of Meech. Yeah. Big Meech, who is really the cultural icon that I think people talk about to this day in pop culture and hip-hop yeah. culture. Um, and and Terry, his brother, is is the more classy, conservative person. And the second season landed itself yeah his um voiceover as they expand and also break away from one another um so you you got that right I, and yeah. i i love i love the the brother because i have two boys so i think about that all the time the bond between brothers and like like taking care of your brother but being pissed at your brother <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> i can't imagine trying to run a drug empire at the same time i don't know but um i i definitely think that um their character development over mm -hmm. the over the season the the seasons is really good and shows such growth even and i like the kind of like jumping back and forth in time like seeing the ending before the before you know they show it and everything those family dinner scenes i thought were great <laughs> like all of that I, I i don't know i'm i was i love this is one of the reasons too i don't know if i would have picked up on this show and now I'm watching a good show. So like I'm always happy and, and good work too. That's what I, I, one of the things I love about doing this is like being introduced to people's work that I kind of, I, I'm unaware of or something. So 
Bravo. I thought you were in Detroit the whole time in 1989. So <laughs> yeah, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. I, I'm sure you know that like, it's really hard. I, it, for me, it's hard, especially with a show like BMF where I'm, you know, I spent two years on it to detach myself from the subject matter and from the filmmaking process enough to see it with, yeah. with, with fresh eyes. And so it's really hard for me to watch it and, and really determine, are we effective? And I know that there's a lot of people who really appreciate and like the show. And I definitely think that in the art department, we were able to do some really beautiful sets and yeah. that, I'm, that I'm walking away with now being very proud of. Um, canines yeah. hang out. That's awesome. What, I, I, canines, that guy, uh -huh. the, the, yeah, yeah, that's his name. Right? Oh, wow. the, I mean, the room with the chandelier Right, his chandelier, and then yeah. the TV wall, and then he, and then it's he's got the big mirror piece behind him, which mm -hmm. was a built-in, right? And is that that's a set? I'm assuming that whole room is a set. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We built that set, and that was really the first liberty in season one of 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 making mentors that came to the brothers, giving them a bigger than life flair, mm. and saying, okay, how can we branch away from the concept of of um, generational poverty that we created with a sense of claustrophobia that the boys really need to break out of and and, and grow out of. How do we create those characters while staying truthful to a realistic element, um, create them in, in a larger than life um, environment? Yeah. And with K-9, we took that liberty. And if you had seen that set, without the actors in it you could have possibly thrown it into a fantasy movie too mm, like yeah. it had those very exaggerated textures and pillars and gold leaf and those very heavy ceiling beams and i i go back and i wonder like okay like if we had had a little bit more time <laughs> you know that there, there could have been some refinement but it was effective and people really liked it and yeah. then a lot of the pieces that you just referred to really comes back to our set decorator. And that was Hernan Camacho. Yeah, he's and so nice. <laughs> praise, yeah, and praise him. He was my partner in crime. And I often say, I just create shells for Hernan to play in. <laughs> like, you know, our collaboration was so wonderful. And I remember when I called him and I said, Hernan, would, would you consider coming to Atlanta and doing this TV show with me? You don't even know me. And, and I thought, I'll just offer it to him. And then he called me and he said, yes, I'm going to do it, Catherine. Mm -hmm. And that was just, I, I felt like I got really lucky. Yeah, he's great. Wonderful collaborator. He's got a great eye. He's, he's really great with color from what I've seen of his work. I've met him maybe a small handful of times and I yeah. just think he's a great, great guy. Yeah, Fun. he's wonderful. And so that mirrored piece behind K9 was a piece that Hernan found. Oh, wow. And that's a gem. Yeah, he's, it's a gem. And he presented it and said, Kat, that's our Scarface moment right there. And I said, let's go for it. It's yes. wonderful. So that was a true collaboration. And I think I always aim for that with the set decorators. And because they, you guys, you are a set decorator yourself. You bring so much storytelling to the table. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I set a very high standard for yeah. that position. Like I wouldn't want to, I, I couldn't settle with, with an interior decorator who, who 
doesn't understand the layers that storytelling and characters, yeah. you know, the character yeah. define, um, the definition of character brings to your job and to the table with that. And that's the that's... fun part. That's the, that's mm -hmm. what you hope you have time and money for is like yeah. the, the bedside pieces and the character pieces that you can throw in there. What books are they actually reading instead of just like, oh, I got to buy a bunch of books for its wall, mm -hmm. like really sourcing out what would they be reading but um, yeah, yeah. I, I also think in their house, there's tons of layers of personality. And especially since it was designed that they're like always fixing it up and it's always a little bit under construction or unpainted balls or he punches a hole in the wall or, and it's there. Like, is that a progression that they wanted to show that they, or was, was that real? Did the, did the brothers tell you that? Like, how did that come about? Um, well, I, that's why I think this project is so um, in, entirely different than anything I've ever done before. And so dear to my heart and special um, is the, the amount of information that, that the family shared with me. Oh, Randy, Randy invited me to come up to Detroit before we started pre-production on season one. And I spent a weekend up there with him. And he introduced me to Mrs. Flannery, the mother of, oh, of the great. brothers and their sister and their best friend, Roland, who also has a, a character portrayal in the TV series. And I was able to visit the original house that you also see in the, fam uh, in the TV series. And we broke bread together over dinner. And then they brought down a huge box of photos. Oh. And we spent an entire night with cognac looking through these photos and they shared so much information with me oh that's awesome and it was amazing and i was really able to ask questions uh, and my partner who is um, an art director he had joined me on the trip not as an art director but as a partner and a documentary filmmaker and he got involved in it all and we were able from that background of social and cultural anthropology and documentary to really dive into not only what the architectural details were of that house as our the core of our tv series but also to find out what memories matter to the family oh, that's and, fantastic yeah and, and to miss flannery it was um the the uh, you know the powder coated gold powder coated furniture frames and and the velour sofa and her golden vertical blinds. And for Nicole, it was the, the way the stucco was done on the ceiling that she hand did in circles mm. and put glitter on it. So there was so much pride in, in their memories that I felt like it was an obligation, but also a tremendous gift oh, being yeah. able to take that information and design that, that set based on, on the information they shared. And so that everything that you addressed earlier in your question was part of the history of that house and the family dynamic and the poverty that they faced and the barter system that the father had of not necessarily bringing money home all the time, but bringing items home yeah. Yeah. or, you know, and so they partially were able to maintain the house um, and fix it up over the course of time, but it really tied into um, I think on a greater symbolic level, it's a representation of what generational poverty becomes and represents. It's kind of this home 
that's not complete and that's yeah. not always safe, but that has a lot of warmth and integrity at the same time. Because it's, it's not usually, it doesn't usually read well. I've done that set where like, oh, he's working on this room back here and it looks like they didn't finish the set and, and I got to put ladders and tools around and it's like some visqueen up there and it just like, like mm. I, it doesn't read unless it's like conveyed in this in like verbally in the in the um, dialogue. But with this and and you're watching this family and you're growing with this family over the seasons, it did it did feel like this is another character that they're working on. It's a part of this, you know, it's their home that they're, they're still, their sons are still there with them and they're, they're bringing up the younger daughter and they're trying to keep their house and make the mortgage and like all of that. But I really enjoyed that it was portrayed like that because that's realistic. You don't, a, a lot of people start renovations or they got the money at one time and now it's gone and now we got to mm-hmm. wait and then we got to, you know, focus on getting bread here today or something. It's horrible, but it it really showed, I think, such great character in the design of their house instead of like, oh, we fixed up this one piece. It really was like throughout, which I really liked. And I love the tile in the kitchen. I always say that too. <laughs> well, we did so many samples to figure out the right tile that was all custom printed. Um, but I think what you're addressing here is kind of that overall conundrum of our profession, right? If you describe production design and set decoration, everything in between, and that entails the art department, and then even go beyond that into filmmaking. But I think for production design and set decoration, especially, our job is really we put ourselves into the shoes of other people and that's it that's what we do and that's what we need to constantly curate and shape and educate and question are we doing it right yeah and i think you know um i'd rather let other people judge that work if we succeeded or not because I think there's always, it's it's that fine balance of figuring out the tonality of a project that we're working on and then understanding how do we manifest that in a complete natural sense. Like how does an object, how do you dress an object so it looks like it's been there? It just belongs. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I've kind of broken away from the concept of trying to dress anything for camera. I just dress for the people yeah that live in that space and you don't ever you just ignore the camera and you ignore the thought that a camera is ever going to be in that space no and you ignore you ignore you ignore when they tell you we're not going to see over there because they are yeah well yes because they are and then you're going to be screwed so you got to dress the whole thing yes and we yeah we did on 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 bmf i don't think there was one location where we actually decided to do just a two-wall set or well, we have a fourth wall. I think in every season we had over two hundred sets. Yeah, you've got like a, not set builds, but locations. Tons, sets, tons. and everything was a three sixty dress. Yeah. Everything. Did you? Yeah. So your builds were the their house, the police station. Was that a build? Yes. And then you said canines was a build. Oh, in in the first season we built the flannery home the lower floor and the upper floor 
then um lawanda's home the yellow the yellow oh. place that's the, the, the terry's girlfriend at the time then we built the house for monique um Mitch's lover mm. um who was played by cash doll and i just completely adore her um then we built the police station we built the barbershop we built the record oh, the store. record store yeah i was gonna say the record, record store was the barbershop turned into the record store. oh wow then the back room for that barbershop and then that back room turned into two more gambling spots then we built we built so many things we we had 16 set builds like station for the entire season on season one plus swing sets and then on season two um the triple a set that fpi set then we built um k9s which was two rooms we built b mickey's basement then several bathrooms several bedrooms yeah it was a lot it was yeah our stages ran out of space at some point we only have two spaces uh, two stages and um now in season three um i i was only there for prep but we um frankensteined a lot of these old sets and uh, yet again turning them into new ones so there was a lot of a lot of set construction which obviously we always love yes we love to build because we have control (laughs) no i love the build um i i thought i was wondering too at some point if the church was a build but then like with the doors and everything i was like "Mm, i don't know but that's we found a church we found a church yeah it's so great it's that just one kind of odd place to picture in the back is so perfect yeah we wanted to leave it intentionally sparse and awkward like i love going and you know that from location scouts like you you really dive into these random places yeah people never expected a film crew to show up and and consider their home as a as a film set and then you just watch and you're like how like what's the motivation that that picture frame yeah. ended up an inch away from the door trim yeah. although there's an entire wall next to it that has nothing on it like yeah how do people think and i find that so beautiful yeah i love it I and love it's hard it. to replicate it's hard yes, to it replicate because it feels so wrong and when yeah. you do it I, I you do it and you're like it just looks like i did like that looks ridiculous and then you're like yeah. it's supposed to look ridiculous and that's when it works <laughs> yeah and you let go and you're, but yeah yeah no i love it and you're absolutely right it's hard to recreate nature and it's hard to recreate natural instincts of, of human beings and i think that's a constant study that you know that keeps us busy and curious yeah, yeah. so are you gonna do season three or just prepped it I, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, um, I, I, um, jumped on to, um, assist in, in, in the birth of a couple of sets. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that is the goodbye then. Yes. Yeah. I, I think being on a show for two, uh, for two full seasons is a, is a beautiful experience. And unfortunately in our industry, sometimes, um, we are attached to projects that overlap or that push and then start overlapping and then we have to make that hard choice of what you know where to pour our passion into well that is that really is the hard thing and timing in this industry of like and I always have like fear that I didn't pick the right thing or like fear that like I 
I should have just waited and this would have came or like, oh, of course they called me a week after. Like, <laughs> like I constantly have that. But you have to just feel it out and know what's right and what's going to work for you. And mm-hmm. I think everybody's grabbing on anything right now because <laughs> we could potentially have a strike, which would suck. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I think like with this whole like feeling of uh, being afraid of missing an opportunity, I'm trying and it's it's not easy and it doesn't always work. But I, I think as much as we pick projects, they also pick us and stories pick us. Yeah. And when I look back, maybe not so much in my TV projects, but a lot of the feature films, they came at a time where a theme in that feature mm. film was prominent in my personal life. Mm. And it, it allowed me a playground to deal with certain questions in my own life. And so I'm of the firm belief um, of saying that projects find us. And Mm. that allows me sometimes to not weep over opportunities that I missed. And it also helps us to not compare ourselves too much with others. And I think that's that's a very difficult thing in our industry. Um, And we come up with peers and then you know, in their eyes, we excel. And in our eyes, our peers are always more successful than yeah. we are or have these great connections or land this project or get that award. Yeah. And um, dealing with that and finding peace with it of, you know, not comparing ourselves, yeah. I think is very, very important it's, because we it have is. to find our own path. Yeah. It is, and it's really hard to do. <laughs> it's really it hard. Is. You're so Very right. Hard. You're so on it. But yeah, or, or even like, like what you said. I really appreciate her talking about the strengths and the struggles of working out of the country because it's got to be hard. It's It's got to be hard as a designer to just go blindly, like feeling alone in this project that you want to do so well in and maybe feeling like your art department is weak or you're not getting good people. And I'm not, say, I'm not saying, she didn't say that. I'm saying, I'm talking about a fear that I would have. Um, I would be very anxious about that. But there is uh, so much that goes into the horror genre and, um, and the pressure, I would think, of taking over a cult classic. So I'm glad that I, I got to talk to her. I think she did a tremendous job updating the design of the story, and and again that those Art Deco elements I really think lended to uh, the overall design being successful. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, I really thought that BMF was filmed in Detroit. So bravo to that crew. You fooled me. I really, <laughs> I was like, oh look at her. She's all over the world. <laughs> She's in Atlanta. <laughs> But uh, thank you, Catherine, for that interview. And um, hope I get to meet her. She sounds cool. I love that. Love that accent. Like it. Um, let's see. What do we got? Coming up next week, we have production designer James Bartle. After that, production designer Clarence Major, set decorator Regina Graves to kick off our little Emmy season here. I might have some Emmy contenders. In fact, I got a couple. Got a couple coming in for you. One, uh, two, maybe three. And then I have a really big interview that I have been prepping for for like two years. And I finally got the balls to reach out to someone and they said yes. And I'm so happy. So that is coming up soon too. I know. 
settle down. I'm not going to tell you because I haven't recorded yet. I don't really like to tell who I'm going to talk to before I record it because schedules change and I don't get to talk to people. And then, you know, it doesn't, doesn't happen and I feel like an ass. All right. But please review and rate on any platform. Follow Decorating Pages uh, on Instagram, TikTok, which I'm lacking. But the ones that I have up there are good. Take a look. I will get to do some more. And then um, check out the Decorating Pages podcast dot com, you know, and uh, that's it. That's all I got. So I hope you got an earful. I'm Kim One Up with Decorating Pages. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.